How have these student development theories of the past fallen short in their ability to address the identity, realities, and experiences of marginalized students? What, what was missing there? What is missing there? The theories help us understand how to help students feel like they belong belong in a space that oftentimes they don't feel like they belong. And so I know when I was doing student support services, I was a predominantly white institution. And sometimes the spaces in which I was doing that work were the places where our students felt most comfortable. So how do I arm them using these theories with a belonging that takes them throughout their, their time at that institution? Welcome to Student Affairs Now the online learning community for student affairs educators. I'm your host, Rochelle Pope. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays, and you can find us at studentaffairsnow.com. You can find us on YouTube or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. This episode today is brought to you by Stylus Publishing. Visit styluspub.com and use the promo code SANOW for 30% off and free shipping. This episode is also sponsored by Vector Solutions, formerly EverFi, the trusted partner for 2,000 colleges and universities. EverFi is the standard of care for student safety and inclusion. Now, as I mentioned, I'm Rochelle Pope. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm broadcasting from Williamsville, New York, near the campus of the University at Buffalo, where I serve as the Senior Associate Dean of Faculty and Student Affairs and the University Diversity Officer for the Graduate School of Education. I'm also a professor in the Higher Education and Student Affairs programs. The University at Buffalo is situated on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Haudenosaunee people. I'm joined today by two of the editors of the book, Square Pegs and Round Holes, Alternative Approaches to Diverse College Student Development Theory. I'm joined with, by, I'm joined, uh, I'm um, with Dr. Fred Bonner and Dr. Stella Smith. Now, as a self-professed and longtime student development geek, I am so excited to have this conversation and to revisit college student development frameworks with a focus on marginalized communities. So thank you for joining me today for this episode of Student Affairs Now, and welcome to the podcast. I was hoping that you could begin by telling us a bit about you, your current role on campus, and a bit about your pathways in education. Um, Fred, why don't you start us off? Well, thank you so much, my dear friend. I'm always excited to see you and always excited to uh, participate in any conversation related to higher ed and student affairs. And um, you have been uh, doing great work, excellent work for a, a long time. And I so appreciate your friendship, your mentoring, your peer mentoring, and the role that you're playing in the field of student affairs and, and in higher ed. That is so, so thank you. <laughs> yes, 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 wouldn't have missed it. I want to share just a little bit about me. My name is uh, Fred Bonner. I am professor, endowed chair, and the um, Wilhelmina Delco endowed uh, chair here at Prairie View A&M University. And uh, if you don't know anything about Prairie View, we are the HBCU in the Texas A&M University system. So about 45 minutes down the road from uh, the College Station campus. But I am uh, the uh, director, as you can see on my shirt, of the uh, Mach 3 Center. That stands for Minority Achievement 
creativity, and high ability. So the Mach 3 Center is a galvanizing space for us to be able to foreground research that focuses on minoritized populations, to focus on issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, and it's a place and a space that the NM system has been so generous to provide me with um, the opportunity and the space and room just to dream about what is best for minoritized populations in higher, in higher education across the higher education spectrum. So I've been in this role since uh, 2015. Uh, prior to that, I was the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Endowed Chair at Rutgers University. So a little bit of a shift from the Northeast Coast to uh, the South but uh, a good ship, Ex excited about being here and excited about the work that we're doing. So, and um, you'll get an opportunity to hear from the Associate Director of the Mach 3 Center, Dr. Stella Smith. But the two of us are basically, as I said before, trying to foreground what is best, best practices, and the alchemy for success for minoritized populations across the higher education diaspora. Great. Thank you. And all of those kind words you said about me, um, I certainly um, um, bounce right back to you. I feel so much of the same. Stella, please introduce yourself. Thank you so much. My name is Stella Smith, and I am Associate Director of the Mach 3 Center, as uh, Dr. Bonner said, and I'm also a, an Assistant Professor in the um, Educational Leadership and Counseling Department in the Whitlow R. Green College of Education at Prairie View A&M University. And a little bit, uh, my pronouns are she, her, and hers. And my journey in higher education um, has mostly been at the University of Texas. I was there for a very long time. And um, I came to Prairie View in order to do the work at Mach 3 and to, to be able to be part of uh, Dr. Bonner's dream and vision of creating this space on campus to um, understand and develop asset-based approaches to support underrepresented populations um, in education. And so I've had the, the honor to be here since 2017 and have enjoyed all of the wonderful things that we've been able to do um, so far and look forward to the things we're gonna do in the future. Wow, that's great. And thank you for those for introducing yourselves to our audience. Um, I, I believe that your that your work far exceeds, you know, the Mock Center and um, Texas. And so we've all been um, um, beneficiaries of your work. And um, it's it, it's as no surprise then that you folks in that center and um, are focusing on student development theories. You know, I think it's really important as we want to see our students thrive. So I was, I wanted to ask you just a basic and a general question. What are your thoughts on the importance of student development theories and our work with helping students succeed and thrive on college campuses? Um, what have, what have you thought about student development theory and, 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 and what, what are the directions that you've been seeing? And Fred, why don't you start us off there? Excellent. That is a very important question, a very key question, particularly for those of us who study higher education and student affairs. So going back to some of my early training in higher ed and student affairs, um, I was always intrigued by the narrative, by the story about how students learn, how they grew, how they developed. But the story and the narrative was always told from a perspective that in some ways I thought, left me out. Mm -hmm. It was a perspective where my voice, uh, the people who I knew, the African-American males from my community, 
or the Hispanic males from my community or the Hispanic females or the Native American students. So I just always felt like, you know, as we, uh, we would always talk about the, uh, the alphabet soup of names, the uh, Aston, Ascarella, uh, Pascarella, Terenzini, Tinto, uh, Schlossberg, you know, on and on and on, you know, and I was, uh, Pat King, I mean, the work that she was doing, I mean, the list is long, but again, the work that these Vanguard scholars was doing was very, very important. It's quintessential, it's key. I mean, you know, you, you can never diminish or wash away a Colbert or these people who really gave us the seminal works, the seeds that planted, that have grown into student development theory. However, what I wanted was um, some seeds that were sprinkled in my garden. You know, I come from a place where you know, there are rich seeds, there are people who are planting, there are people who are sowing, but it didn't seem like, I didn't see the manifestation of those fruits. So what did it look like for um, an African-American male coming from, like me, I come from a small rural town in East Texas. So my high school graduating class back in getting old, 1987, was the largest class that uh, my town had had for a while. It was 100 students. So, so here it is. I'm coming from small town East Texas, but I went to a um, public high school there. My mom was a teacher there. My father was my high school assistant principal. So I came from this background of these educators coming from these very rural settings, but some educated, smart Black folks from the country. But that story didn't get mapped into the theories that I was reading. Mm -hmm. uh, so I wanted to know, what did it look like for me to go off to the University of North Texas and major in chemistry? You know, what did it look like for my, my friend who decided to go to Grambling State University and major in? Uh, so on and on and on and on and on. So I think the seeds of what we were trying to do with this book, they come from this longstanding tradition and history of Folks who look like me, who want to know more about, you know, what does it mean for me to learn, grow, and develop in the higher education context? Mm -hmm. You know, Stella, I mean, that's that's it's really interesting what um, um, Fred was saying that I didn't feel that I was included, my voice wasn't heard, or my flower wasn't able to grow, or plant wasn't able to grow. And I'm wondering, Stella, when you know, maybe you can. Um, concretize that for us a bit. How have these student development theories of the past fallen short in their ability to address the identity, realities, and experiences of marginalized students? What, what was missing there? What is missing there? Thank you so much for that question. That is critically important. So as I was listening um, to Dr. Bonner talking, I was thinking back to my student support services time. So I spent some time doing direct uh, student support as a student affairs professional. Um, and when I think about this book, although I come at it from a faculty lens, from an editor lens, I also come at it from a practitioner lens as well. And so I think about how the book helps practitioners discover connection and empathy, but not sympathy. So when you think about these traditional theories that are put into place, when you take one of those theories and you try to put it on um, an underrepresented population, sometimes the student affairs professional will come up with a sympathetic kind of connection with the student, not an empathetic. We're trying to show that those students are bringing assets. And that is what some of these theories have lacked. 
they haven't shown our students as bringing assets because the things that they bring that are so remarkable are not included in those traditional theories or not thought about in tra those traditional theories. Mm -hmm. um, they're also bringing connection, like helping student affairs professionals understand how they need to connect with students. We would call it intrusive advising mm -hmm. uh, to try to make sure that you are there when a student needs you and sometimes there when the student doesn't think they need you um, and available so the student knows that they can come to you if for some reason you haven't you haven't realized that they're in crisis. But I think over all of that, the theories help us understand how to help students feel like they belong, belong in a space that oftentimes they don't feel like they belong. And so I know when I was doing student support services, I was a predominantly white institution. And sometimes the spaces in which I was doing that work were the places where our students felt most comfortable. So how do I arm them using these theories with a belonging that takes them throughout their, their time at that institution? And I think the theories that we talk about in this book allow student affairs professionals to begin that work, to begin to figure out <clears throat> how to support our students. Each of them is unique, but gives them a closer pathway and a closer guideline to do that than what is traditionally out there in terms of the theories. Yeah, I really love that asset approach that you talked about and helping students feel like they belong. And I remember way back, and I, I got you beat, Fred, way back when um, I was a student. And I remember at that time, they were talking about these theories. And then the people who didn't fit the, the developmental um, um, progress or or schematic that was was laid out were seen as developmentally delayed mm -hmm. you know and I remember some of those early things that and it took some folks to push and say wait a minute the model is just different I remember with gender for example one of the um, early authors said it's not that we are developmentally delayed because of our connections with relationship this develops before that Mm -hmm. And that was eye-opening. And so that's how we started saying, well, maybe it's just a little different. Maybe it's a different sequence. And some of the stuff that you folks are talking about, and other um, both theorists and scholars who write about this stuff are saying, it's not always just that it's in a different order. Sometimes it's just different. And that we've got to recognize that there is that, um, that there is that difference and that difference is, is valued. Now, let me ask this question of Fred. It's a very similar question to the one for Stella, but I just want to take a different tack. If we develop student development theories that actually responded um, to the needs and the identities and the realities and experiences of our marginalized students, how would they look different? How would they be different? Or what would the students experience that was different? Well, that's, that's an excellent question. And I love um, what you said last. How is the student's experience different? Mm -hmm. So where we have to start, I think, is that fact that students are having these experiences no matter what their identity is. Mm -hmm. So. They're having the experiences. So now that we recognize, here's the experience. So maybe that's your foundation. Yeah. But now the nuances come when we start to look at what that experience means when I layer my identity on top of that. Mm -hmm. So 
And experience is an experience is an experience. I mean, there are certain things that we could say there's a baseline that all college students go through A, B, C, and D. However, they're going through A, B, C, and D differently based on what they're bringing to the environment. You know, even if we take away race and take away gender, take away uh, those identifiers, um, as we delve into um, some of the uh, K-12 literature, you know, we talk a lot about pirate to social and cultural capital. Mm -hmm. So if we look at what students are bringing to the higher ed context, you know, did they have books in the home? Did they have parents who read to them? Did they have uh, access to resources? Did they have computers? Did they have mm -hmm. uh, X, Y, and Z, on and on and on and on. So when we start to look at each student that's going off to college, so here is the first year experience. Well, everyone's going to have this first year, year experience. However, now we're starting to layer on the identity vectors, the race, the mm -hmm. gender, the social cultural capital, you know, the um, rural versus urban. Mm -hmm. So there are so many different ways and approaches and so many different identifiers that signal that those frameworks, they can't all be, the, they can't be operationalized the same way because students don't experience them the same way because they're coming with such different backgrounds, experiences, different traditions, different mores from their homes. You know, I, I guess the best way I can say it, uh, Dr. Pope, so one of my favorite books and one of my dear colleagues from uh, my days at Texas A&M, he's still there, I think he's retiring this year, Dr. Joe Fagan. So all of his great work in sociology and um, I usually keep his book by me pretty close. So one of my favorite, one of his books, he has a million, <laughs> but one of my favorite books is The White Racial Frame. Mm -hmm. And that book is so, so, so intuitive and so, so, so emblematic of how I think we should look at student development theory because herein lies the rub. Just because you take away the frame doesn't mean that you still don't have a picture. Absolutely. And yeah. I think that is what we sometimes miss. The students are coming to you. They are the picture. Mm -hmm. And we are framing them in a particular way. And these theories serve, at, these theories serve as frames. Mm -hmm. And I would say my blackness, my boldness, my black maleness, nine times out of 10 is it's bigger than that little frame that you're putting me in. Right. Your frame is seeing me as this. I'm seeing myself as this. And how often do we do that to students of color? We put them in a, a frame that's five by seven and they're eight by 10. That's, that's, that's lovely. And that, and, then, and that really is, we forget that the frames that we developed were to help us gather some information, to recognize things that were both similar and different. And then all of a sudden we start, you know, start thinking everybody has to fit the frame as opposed to we fit the frame to the person. You know, we buy all five by seven frames. We have to That's recognize it. there's different sizes. We have to recognize the horizontal and the vertical, et cetera. Yeah, that's um, that's that's it. That's it. That's it. So then you folks wrote this book or, you know, edited this book, wrote parts of this book to offer some alternative approaches to remind people that these frames were just that, you know, frames. 
you know, they weren't the whole picture. And you wanted to make sure that your, the theories that you offered, the theories that you highlighted were particular for, for these mar mar marginalized students. But before we get into the frames that you start offering, I want you to tell us a little bit about the origin story of this book. That's always fascinating for our listeners. Um, how did it begin? How did you come up with the idea for this, um, this book? And talk to me about how, the, how you decided who were gonna be the co-editors. And then where did you find these amazing chapter authors? How did you all get together to tell this story and to offer this important resource to us? You know, I, I, I kind of chuckle. Um, that's an excellent question. And I chuckle because I immediately think about uh, uh, Estelle Getty's character in the Golden Girls, uh, Sicily, <laughs> 1922. <laughs> Let me take you back. When I tell you if, uh, if Dr. Bonda was on here, she would definitely say this. And she says it several times. This was a labor of love. Mm -hmm. This book... Um, Dr. Pope, it actually started way back when I was, uh, well, the idea, it was a nascent idea, and it started way back when I was teaching college student development theory, and I taught that course for a lot of years and a lot of different spaces. Mm -hmm. um, I first started teaching uh, the course at AM College Station. No, 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 no. I first started teaching that course when I was at Bowling Green State University. So that was my first tenure track position. And I also taught it at uh, UT San Antonio when I was there in the master's in uh, higher ed student affairs program. Transitioned to Texas A&M and I really doubled down on teaching it there in the SAHI program at A&M. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of like my standing course for master's and doctoral level students. And then flash forward now, well, flash forward to Rutgers University. So in the CSA program, I taught the course there. And now transitioning to Prairie View, still teaching the course. And across all of those contexts, still had this nascent idea that was budding, evolving, and saying, you know, in these very predominantly white spaces, students were saying, Dr. Bonner, that theory does not fit. It doesn't sound like me. What does it mean? Uh, that's, you know, I have to, I have to force myself to fit into these boxes. Mm -hmm. So it's just always this level of discomfort that the students, particularly my students of color, my um, students who identified um, differently, alternatively, whether it was our sexual orientation, whether it was their uh, racial ethnic identity. So there were so many nuances. So many times when I taught the course, we spent just as much time talking about how it was different than the actual theory itself. Mm -hmm. So, and I would share with them just to whet their appetite because the one thing that I always say in class, my two primary uh, key terms to get the class started is typically, I want you to problematize and deconstruct. Mm -hmm. So there are so many issues out there. Everybody has issues. People Magazine has issues. We, we study problems. So how can you take that issue and make that issue a problem that we can attack? Mm -hmm. And I want you to deconstruct. So you never take these theories. You never, you know, don't put that in your mouth until you know where it came from. You have to really, really know how are these theories norm? Do they fit you? Were they normal populations that uh, look sound like you, you know, have the same traditions? So maybe so, maybe not. Most of the time not, but I need you to know 
I need you to deconstruct how that works. You know, how does it work for you? So what does this theory mean? You know, what does chicken ring riser mean for this brother coming from third war in Houston mm -hmm. in this context? So I guess I say now being in a historically black college and university context, it became even more profound to have access to some theories that reflected the student population that I'm teaching. And again, I always say, I am not throwing away a single traditional extant theory because those theories are the foundation. So I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Absolutely not. So I'm just saying that this book is, as the title says, alternative theories of college student development. So we want, you know, we've been traveling down this road, this highway of college student development theories since, you know, the 60s, even before. And people of color, we, we, we're traveling, we're good, we're traveling, but sometimes we need off-ramps. There are some things, there are some issues, there are some topics, there are some, you know, you don't always want what's just on the main highway. Sometimes you need to get to that restaurant kind of off. Mm -hmm. We need to do that very same thing by way of our theories, you know, and that's what this book offers. It gives us some off-ramps to really pursue some venues, some avenues that are really reflective of who we are and what we bring to the high-risk space. Yeah, so... I, I understand then that this was something that had been germinating with you for years and years and years as you were feeling some discomfort and with the theories and they're not telling the whole story. You know, they might tell certain people's stories very well, but they're not telling the whole story. But then how did it get from that um, germination, that idea that you had how to, to turn into now this book? Stella, what would you add to that? How did it move from this idea and this um, problem that was tickling at um, Dr. Bonner for so long. How did it get to you? Thank you for that question. And so um, this particular book is really close to me because it is one of the first things that I worked on as, um, as part of Mach 3. So it had this long history of being an idea um, to um, uh, me helping to helping Dr. Barter put this proposal together and actually start the process of creating um, this amazing text. And so, you know, submitting the proposal, um, going out and, and, and identifying chapter authors that really brought these alternative perspectives to um, that could be written well, that, that were implemented Implement, uh, emblematic, excuse me, of all of these different um, alternative ways in which we could approach student development. Uh, and so, again, as Dr. Banna says, it was a labor of love. Even after that, it took some time for the book to finally come to fruition. But what a wonderful um, product that we that we we had give, because we took the time to really think about which ones of the theories are the ones that are important uh, for this volume. We always hear that we need to make another volume because there's all these other theories that need to be um, brought out to the forefront and to be a companion to this particular volume. Um, but um, you know, I think what the book also demonstrates is that we've got so many practitioners out there ready and, and researchers out there ready to share these alternative theories. You know, they're there. We just need to pull them to the forefront and have them in a place where people can use them and can access them in order to support their work. Um, so it's really wonderful. I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that we have both practitioners and faculty that have written these chapters. So you know, 
know that these theories are theories that they're actually putting into place. These are theories that are helping students get through um, their time at whatever type of institution that they're at. Um, and I think what is also so wonderful about this book is that practitioners are seeing themselves in the chapters as well. So as we think about, oh, we, we do need to help students and that's definitely what we're here for. Practitioners and faculty are also being validated and staff are being validated by seeing that there are these theories that um, might have helped them then do help them now um, as they're going through an academic space. So I just uh, once we got on it, we were on it and it came in and, and it and it happened and we're really excited about that. Well, that is one of the things that I wanted to bring up about the book before we um, jump into the frameworks and all was that this is a book that there are people who are going to pick this up from anywhere in the country and they're going to recognize some of those chapter author names. They are going to be, oh yeah, these are some of the theories that I've been studying in other classes. This is what I know about student development in this direction. Clearly some of those folks on this cutting edge of, of this work. And then at the same time, there are names that aren't known nationally. Mm -hmm. that are known on their particular campus or in their particular region because they are doing this really intense practitioner work. And I thought that that was brilliant because some of the things that they're talking about, some of the things that they're suggesting, some of the um, examples that they're providing mm -hmm. are so clearly um, practical, um, accurate, speaks to the voices that have been feeling um, left out and reminding us of the importance of that work. So that was, um, I, I just think that that was a, a, a piece of genius and you're putting this together. I, um, you know, I wanna stop teasing people and start talking about some of these frameworks because they are so important and they add so much more. So let me ask this question about the frameworks themselves. There are a variety of them offered you know, in, in the book. So what frameworks can or should we use in conceptualizing student development theory um, and how, um, and what are some of the things that you're, that you're actually offering? What are you suggesting um, that, that people know and use and do differently? Um, Fred, why don't you start us off there? Sure. So I would say, What's to me, what is one of the things that's most uh, critical about these frameworks is that one, they give the alternative perspective and they honor the value, the voice and the experiences of each one of those, lack of a better term, the older nomenclature, subpopulations, so population, we're not sub anything. So of the populations that are covered. So with each one of those populations, you have authors, you have scholars, you have practitioners, you have individuals who are truly talking about their experiences in whatever capacity they bring to the book. And um, I'm big, one of the courses that I uh, have taught or sometimes teaches uh, qualitative research. So, and definitely as Dr. Smith can attest, you know, whether we're teaching qualitative research or not, we're chairing a gajillion dissertations, so we're always steeped in qual, particularly qual research. So, but one of the uh, key terms in qualitative research that I always get students to think about when they're talking about their positionality statement um, is the emic versus the edict perspective. Mm -hmm. So the insider perspective, the emic perspective versus the edict perspective, the outsider perspective. 
so I'm, you know, it's it's kind of um, it, it gets weary being um, the subject of the narrative, mm -hmm. as opposed to being the producer of the narrative. Right. Why is someone else telling my story mm. uh, about being a black man, about being a black college student, who is? And again, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that people outside the Edie perspective doesn't matter. It does matter. But you can't have the Edie perspective all the time. <laughs> Right. Every once in a while, can I speak for myself? Mm -hmm. Can these Black men who look like me have their own narrative? Can we foreground our own masculinity, our own, our own gender identity? So these are the things that I think, you know, that Black woman should talk about her epistemology and what that means by way of a theory. You know, that uh, Native American man should talk about, you know, what does it mean to be in a hiring environment where everything is about this very, very uh, low context culture when I come from a high context culture? So how do we get the narratives? How do we have the opportunities for people to truly talk from an authentic space? Mm -hmm. And I think that is what this book does. It allows the foregrounding of emic perspectives told by the individuals who are actually going through these experiences, as opposed to the Edith perspective, somebody outside pontificating and trying to imagine who I am. Mm -hmm. You don't have to imagine who I am when I'm sitting right before you, when I can tell you. But right. that is what people of color, um, people of um, different identities have not been able to do. The higher literature has validated and valued this particular line of inquiry and this particular line of telling the story that is not always indicative, not always uh, representative of who I am. And that's what we wanted this book to be. Mm -hmm. We, each one of these chapters, it is a representation, an authentic representation of who these people are. And Dr. Pope, I'm so glad you said what you said. The brilliance of this book is that it's not just research one scholars or scholars coming from um, our big uh, AAU institutions because we know, and you know, I take that, part of that comes from my experiences being a, a professor and writing uh, letters of uh, recommendation, uh, serving as an external uh, reference um, evaluator for so many uh, colleagues and scholars. And I can remember when I was in the big research one, when I was at Texas A&M, when I was at Rutgers, and when scholars would come up, you know, one of the uh, things that we were saying in the narrative, as you know, at most institutions for tenure and promotion, when you're selecting those people to serve as your external evaluators, they tell you to get individuals from peer institutions, institutions of a similar Carnegie classification ilk. So we get that. However, there's always this caveat. Not all intelligentsia, not all scholars, not all top scholars are in research ones. That's right. So you will find these amazingly brilliant scholars who might be at a Berea college, who might be at an institution, might be at a Stephen F. Austin State University. No lesser institution, great institutions, but not the cachet and caveat of being a research one. Well, I apply that very same notion, that very same thought behind the scholarship that we are doing in this very present context. 
as the world shifts and starts to recognize HBCUs, I mean, we've got this HBCU frenzy going on right now. The worry that I have about that is that for the traditional audience is that there was this poet years and years ago that I heard, um, this is back, back when slam poetry was just kind of coming on the scene, I will never forget. It was this uh, Africana scholar, uh, she was uh, really, really sharp and she had this poem and I just remember the hook, she just kept she just kept reiterating this hook. And the hook said, you take the culture, you leave the people. 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 So that has stuck with me. That was like 1997. That has stuck with me all that time. You take the culture, you leave the people. Right. So with this big ethos, this move, this zeitgeist we have in this country right now about HBCUs, I want us to not only take the culture, but also take the people along with you as you move. And I think this book does that. Well, I think it does in a, in a couple of circumstances, because you could look in um, um, this book is so broad, you know, with your, what is it, 19 chapters and, or 18 chapters. And then there's seven parts to this um, book. And so there are parts where you're talking about um, African-American populations. You're talking about Asian American student populations and providing frames and frameworks for those. You're talking about Latinx college populations and again, providing um, multiple frames there. Um, LGBTQIA populations and providing multiple frames there. Uh, multiracial and Native American college student populations, um, non-traditional age college student populations. And so it really has a whole lot going in there. And with each of those, you take the culture and not the population. And you're saying, uh-uh, take them both, you know, and that that's such an important um, part of that. So let me ask you um, a couple of questions about these frameworks that were offered and what, again, these scholars, these practitioners offered that is both similar and different. If you were to, um, think about how these frameworks translate to practice. Now, you know, for those of us who are um, scholars, who are professors, we know the importance of that. Sometimes we don't, um, we're not living that anymore, even though we, you know, we lived it before, right? So what I'd like to know is, um, you know, and, as you think about those different chapters and the folks who offered these frames, how can these frameworks translate to practice in the various domains. And so I'm saying to my listeners right now, um, listen up, because those of you who are doing this in practice work, this book is offering you opportunities to really see it. Are there a couple that stand out for you, Stella, as you think about one or two of these chapters that said, here, is, here are some real clear ideas as to how to translate these theories? You know, that's an interesting question. You know, it's almost like asking you, which one of your kids do you love the most? <laughs> um, so, so whatever I name doesn't mean that I don't love the other one. It's just the one that popped into my head when you exactly. asked that question. <laughs> so um, when I think about all of the chapters, and this is particularly um, uh, placed in what I do right now. So as a, as a faculty member, um, in a doctoral program mm -hmm. um, and thinking about a population that is often not talked about. Um, I really I really think about the non-traditional age student chapter um, and um, as something that really stands out to me only because there are so many of 
underrepresented students in graduate programs that I think are being underserved and not well served in those spaces. The institution does not change the way it does what it does for a graduate student in most cases. Mm -hmm. And so those chapters talking about different ways to support the educational experience of a um, of a non-traditional student, uh, particularly one that's in a, in a graduate program, a working student, I think are really, really important and critical now that we're coming out of COVID. I mean, I think there's things about the student experience that have been uh, revealed that were there before. I think those of us that kind of worked through it as we were trying to make it through undergrad and knew we weren't traditional, mm -hmm. um, but didn't get the kind of support that we needed at that time, you know, now institutions are making changes and shifts in order to support support all these different diverse um, diverse types of students. And being a non-traditional student adds a le level of identity um, that sometimes we don't recognize and we don't mm -hmm. talk about. And I, I, I believe that that is a really important section of, um, of the book and one that is often not talked about as much. Um, and I think it gets to um, the multiple identities that we bring in. You know, we talked about multiple identities, but in as I was thinking about that question, everybody has multiple identities. Like, it's, you know, everybody is walking through life in multiple identities. It just so happens that we are now trying to help people recognize the fact that we come in with multiple identities. Um, I think about being at an HBCU, you know, people think HBCUs are monoliths, but there's all sorts of dark people walking around with multiple identities on this campus. Like we are not all the same. And so, and that is the same for all of the groups that we're talking about. So by asking people to recognize people for people, to recognize them for what they bring to the table and provide them and let them know that you are thinking of them, what they bring to the table as assets versus deficits, and that you're willing to work with them to get the things that they need to be successful in that space. That's what every one of these theories is trying to say. Wow. You know, and I think, I think you, you hit it on the head and you're right. I'm telling folks, if you haven't read this book, if you don't have this book on your shelf right now, go get it. You know, and I'm, and I'm looking at uh, my timer here and we are really getting close to out of times. And there's tons of stuff that I wanted to ask you, tons of stuff I'm sure that you um, could have said, we didn't talk about this. So let me just give you a, a couple of minutes each to say, look, I wish we would have covered this, but we didn't get to it and say a little bit about that. And so Fred, why don't we start with you? Um, what do you wish we had a chance to cover, didn't quite get to, and what can you offer uh, to us? Was that me? Did you yeah, say me? Right. Uh -huh. Okay. Okay. Dr. Bonner. <laughs> You're like, okay, hello. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, ma'am. And I would say, um, my dear friend, you've actually covered a lot of the landscape. These have been some excellent questions, and I'm not surprised because you're brilliant. I mean, you do what you do. <laughs> I'm gonna so, have you on again next week. <laughs> But I, you know, I would say it kind of um, piggybacks on what Dr. Smith just said. The thing that I most, um, one of the things that I like about this book is that it really, really unpacks some areas. It actually allows the reader to go down some uh, pathways that are not traditionally thought of. Um, for instance, so, and this connects to uh, a book, my book series. I have a book series 
um, diverse faculty in the academy. Mm -hmm. And um, the interesting thing about that series, the very, very first book in my series was uh, Racial Battle Fatigue. Mm -hmm. So when we hear racial battle fatigue, and so this kind of goes to me talking about problematizing, deconstructing. So even when we get to the alternative theories, there's like our thought process sometimes don't go to an alternative uh, place. So what I like about the very first book in my um, series is that it's an alternative to the alternative, what I, what I mean by that. So whenever we typically hear a lot of us scholars in higher education, racial battle fatigue, the very first place that we go is for African-American scholars mm -hmm. or Black people, which I get it because my dear friend, our good brother, Dr. William Smith coined the term, so very strong Black scholars. So, and Black folks, African-American folks have used racial battle fatigue in some very important and important and critical ways. What I love about this first book is that it's racial battle fatigue in faculty, but it's not Black faculty, it's Asian American faculty. Mm -hmm. That is what I like about this book in the sense that we get to problematize theory for some populations that our assumption is that they don't need a theory, they're doing fine. Right. You know, moving beyond that whole notion of uh, that uh, the stereotype, you know, model minority syndrome. But we see this book also allows Asian American populations to theorize and fit the frame to their culture. Yep. Some of the things that we don't know. And I'm also proud about the fact that we have um, different approaches to Native American LGBTQIA. And as Dr. Smith said, actually piggyback on what she said about non-traditional students, just this past week in our doctoral class here at Prairie View A&M University, our students were saying we had this really wonderful uh, discussion. It was actually Dr. Smith's policy class. This really wonderful discussion about what these students were bringing to the doctoral program. And what we found out is that we need to talk about what it means to be a non-traditional doctoral student. Yeah. So they said, we're spending so much time talking about what it means to be a freshman, a sophomore, just getting into college. Do you know some of us here, you know, they talk about their family backgrounds. They, they were talking about, you know, having, um, not having resources, how difficult it was just to get to Prairie View or get into a doctoral program. So like, we get it, Dr. Bonnie. Yeah, we need to talk about at that level, you know, what it means, some of these non-traditional issues, but has anyone ever unpacked what it means to be a non-traditional doctoral student? Because we catch hell sometimes just trying to make it here in these spaces, whether it's AM, whether it's Prairie Review, whether it's Howard, whether it's Fisk. We are struggling too, but no one really problematizes what it means to be a non-traditional doctoral student. Right, 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 right. Well, and our, our literature is so... Um, limited when it comes to graduate education in general. And yeah. I've got, you know, one of my doctoral students right now is saying, nobody knows my experience in graduate school. We have very little going on. Um, and so then you take that population and you open it up as you folks have done in the book, open it up and see who else is in there. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to give you a chance to say, what do you wish we had covered that we didn't get to that is that around alternative approaches to student development or the book that you folks have offered us? 
Well, I think as Dr. Bonner said, we had a really robust discussion. I think it's just enough of a teaser in order for people to go <laughs> get the book and get it because it's going to be affirming for you. It's going to be affirming for you personally as you read it, I think, as you see yourself in some of these theories, and we hope you see yourself in some of these theories and how it will be helpful and instructive as you work with students. So um I know we see it at, at Prairie View as faculty members. We spend a lot of time working with students. Um, in doctoral programs, we spend a lot of time working with students, um, advisors and undergraduate programs and faculty in undergraduate programs. Um, I, I want you, it, it, it will be helpful for you so that you can see at least a glimpse of what frame your student might come in. Now that frame is gonna change because each person is individual, but at least it will help you recognize and help that student um, open themselves up and be able to get the education that they deserve in that space. That is really what this work is about. It's about how do we create a space that supports these underrepresented students in a way that gives them the experience that they need to go on and do amazing things. And that is our role. And we hope that this text will help those people on the front lines, those practitioners, those faculty members, um, those advisors have the tools to do that work. Well, that's great. I want to grab the book because I'm going to show it to folks as I talk about this. Um, this is the book that we're talking about, Square Pegs and Round Holes, Alternative Approaches to Diverse College Student Development Theory. Um, for those of you who are watching this on uh, YouTube, you got to see the pictures. And for those of you who are listening, um, you remember that title. I want to thank you both. I want to thank our sponsors, Stylus Publications and Vector Solutions. And I want to remind you that Square Pegs is um, published by Stylus. Stylus is, a, is proud to be a sponsor for the Student Affairs Now podcast. Browse their student affairs, diversity, and professional development titles at styluspub.com and use the promo code SANOW for 30% off all books plus free shipping. You can also find Stylus on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter at, at StylusPub. Vector Solutions, how will your institutions rise to reach today's socially conscious generation? These students report commitments to safety, well-being, and inclusion are as important to them as academic rigor when they're selecting a college. It's time to reimagine the work of student affairs as an investment and not as an expense. For over 20 years, Vector Solutions, which now includes the Campus Prevention Network, which was formerly EverFi, has been the partner of choice for more than 2,000 colleges and universities and national organizations. So with nine efficacy studies behind their courses, you can trust and have full confidence that you are using the standard of care for student safety, well-being, and inclusion. Transform the future of your institutions and the communities you serve. Learn more at VectorSolutions.com, Student Affairs Now. Um, huge and heartfelt shout out to Natalie Ambrosi, the production assistant for the podcast who does all the behind the scenes works and works so hard to make us look and sound good. To our listeners, I am so grateful for all your time today. This conversation has given me so much to think about and I hope it's done the same for you. As you listen today, if you found this content to be useful for your student affairs practice and scholarship, we'd love it if you shared this episode with your social media networks. 
please subscribe to the podcast, invite others to subscribe, share on social media, or leave a five-star review. It really helps the conversations like this to reach more folks and build a bigger learning community. Again, I'm Michelle Pope, and thanks to these amazing folks, Drs. Fred Bonner and Dr. Stella Smith, and to everyone else who's listening and watching. Be safe out there, folks.